1: The FT. On the show this week, the continuing Eurozone debt saga and what appear to be growing risks of contagion.
2: The way the markets look at this is this is no longer about individual countries. It's not an Irish problem or a Greek problem. It's is starting to be something systemic.
1: WikiLeaks and the revelations they've offered us about what rulers in the Middle East really think.
3: The main issue that comes out very strongly is the paranoia, the obsession of Arab leaders, particularly in the Gulf, over Iran.
1: And Europe's hidden millions. You're listening to World Weekly with me, David Gardner. We start with those hidden millions and our investigation into how EU structural funds, a bit over one third of the entire European Union budget, are being spent. Joining me in the studio to tell us more is Cynthia O'Murko, the FT's investigative journalist, and on the line from Brussels is Bureau Chief Peter Spiegel. Cynthia, perhaps we can start with you. Tell us about the investigation, its scope, and what it has revealed.
4: At the outset, what we wanted to do is really ask and, and answer the, what, what we thought was a very simple question, which was where does the money go? And to that end, we put together a database of the list of beneficiaries. And what we found was, first of all, that we have a serious doubt about the level of transparency, so that while information is technically out there, it's not out there in a way that a taxpayer or anybody who really interested, can make any sense of it. We've looked at fraud against the European Union budget, the oversight system, and the fact that uh, very little money has actually finally reached, uh, so far, the end recipients.
1: But isn't, broadly speaking, as these things go, the quality of spending is generally high, and Brussels has been able mostly to ensure that all the big projects are clean, and furthermore, isn't it the case that most member states simply wouldn't tolerate much greater central control from Brussels?
4: Yes, I think there's a there's a big question about how to do this oversight in a different way. There's an issue between the level of control. Member states wouldn't really want uh, Brussels to, to look at this from the top. A lot of it is about transparency.
1: Peter, what's your view? Is this good value for money at a time of pan-European austerity and pressure on national budget?
4: I mean,
5: that's the issue. The problem, as Cynthia points out, is the transparency problem. Some of the stuff we just don't know. But we also have to keep in mind the political context of this right now. Nation-states have pushed through austerity budgets in almost every national capital. The EU is requesting a significant increase in its budgets, and the national capitals are very angry about that. And they are out with scalpels, and they are looking for ways to cut. And this is the second largest line item in the entire EU budget. It is opaque. It is, although the error rate itself is rather small, they generate very bad headlines. Some of the revelations we have pointed out uh, involve money going to Italian mafia groups, bridges to nowhere. It, It is again, perhaps a small percentage of the overall spend, but they become very, very politicized, they become very, very high profile. And in the current environment, the political environment, it becomes very difficult to defend against nation states, which are right now in a mood to cut.
1: But a great deal of this cohesion money flows back to donors whose construction and engineering companies are best placed to carry out these funded projects. One thinks of Germany as the biggest net contributor, but German companies such as Siemens being the biggest reapers of the profits at a time when state aids are frowned on, there isn't much money to, to support national champions anyway.
5: It goes to the core of the debate now about the future of this program. Right now, the program basically sends money to all 27 nations, including Luxembourg, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. That is because the argument is this fund must target poor regions within countries, not poor countries. There is an argument as a way to, to cut down on the spend to get the funds out of countries that are above the median GDP in Europe and focus only on the poorer countries. And that would largely be the Poland's, the Czech Republic's, the, the new member states in the East. That is one way that national governments are looking at, perhaps, cutting back on this. So those, those, those things that you were talking about, David, that, that these funds that are supposed to go to development infrastructure projects in poor regions are not, in fact, enriching larger corporations in some of the wealthier member states. It's a real question that a lot of people have
1: about this program. Thank you very much, Peter in Brussels. Thank you, Cynthia in the studio. Now, on to Eurozone debt and the risks of contagion. Joining me in the studio is Richard Milne, the FT's Capital Markets Editor. And on the line from Frankfurt, we have Ralph Atkins, the FT's Frankfurt Bureau Chief. Richard, can I start with you? Last weekend's rescue package, pushed on Ireland, doesn't seem to have built a definitive firebreak. What are the options now to contain this? No fire break at all, really, from
2: the market standpoint. I think we're entering a, a new, more dangerous and possibly decisive phase in this. For the markets, that's coming down to two main solutions, one short-term, one long-term, both potentially politically unpalatable. The first would be that the European Central Bank steps up its bond purchases in a kind of massive way. People in the markets are talking about one or two trillion euros. Uh, that'd be real quantitative easing. The second option is fiscal union. Now, we know politically this is really something that nobody wants, but for the markets, they're starting to see the Irish bailout as one precursor to that, and also this European financial stability facility starting to issue its first
1: bond next month. Ralph. What are the prospects, do you think, of the decision will be quite soon, but of the ECB acting in this decisive way?
6: The ECB's obviously got a huge vested interest in the euro's future and its stability. And as we've seen, it's been extremely active behind the scenes in in Ireland and and in other cases, uh, lobbying the politicians and so on. So I think they've got a real sense that they need to take um, action here. And I I think we could see quite a determined um, response by them in, in, in coming days and weeks. But of course, it's incredibly controversial within the ECB, because you have this very strong German tradition represented by Axel Weber from the Bundesbank, who does not like any whiff of mixing of fiscal and monetary policies because this is, it goes against everything the German sort of monetarist view stands for. It brings inflation risk and sets the complete the wrong incentives for government. So it's whether the sort of principled stance of the German can be overcome by a sense of pragmatism by the rest of the ECB.
1: We mentioned contagion at the beginning. Is there a serious risk of this spreading to a big economy like Spain or even Italy?
6: Well, I think that's the big threat, isn't it? I mean, I think that's why it's become so serious, why it's preoccupying people so much, and and why markets are reacting in this way. And it it, it strikes people here in Frankfurt and in the political capitals as well. You know, as sort of crazy, why is this economy that's got better finances in many ways than countries such as the UK suddenly being hit? And it, it sort of strikes as a sort of a core sort of problem with the the monetary union that you uh, you can't devalue your way out of problems, and you can't the central bank. Can't embark on buying up the government debt in the way it has in the UK and the US.
1: Which brings us back to the point, that the longer term point that you mentioned, Richard, about fiscal union. There isn't much overt political appetite for this, but are we going to get a sort of mission creep which? actually brings us into that
2: the way the markets look at this is this is no longer about individual countries it's not an irish problem or a greek problem it's is starting to be something systemic and therefore the answer needs to be a systemic answer and so fiscal union has that neatness about it I, I think the irish point is as you say it was forced upon them they've been told to cut the minimum wage by a large percent As ever with Europe, this is going to be glacial. This is going to be step by step. It's unlikely you're going to get some huge big bang announcement. But, you know, the signs are there that something could be happening.
1: Isn't there a risk that unless there is something decisive, clear, overt, transparent, that even one or two trillion euros worth of of activity will amount to just so many band-aids?
2: What the markets really want to see is something that doesn't just deal with the next country because it's like a game of uh, shooting the ducks uh, in a firing range Um, it'll be Spain then Italy then France so there needs to be something more definitive would the ECB purchases that that could just buy you time that seems to be the dominant theme let's buy more time so I think you know these questions of fiscal union are going to stay for a long time
1: Richard Ralph thank you very much indeed And now to our final topic of today, WikiLeaks and the Middle East. Joining me on the line now is our Middle East editor, Rula Khalaf. Rula, perhaps we can start by talking about exactly what was revealed, what was new in the recent round, the recent dump of WikiLeaks about the Middle East
3: i'm not sure that anything that was revealed was terribly new these are things that we've known for a long time but it's different of course to see them stated in in these cables the main issue that comes out very strongly is the paranoia the obsession of arab leaders particularly in the gulf but also egypt and jordan over iran iran's nuclear program and what they think be done about it. There is a whole host of cables that tell us that various leaders at different points in time have pressed the American administration to do everything possible, including military action. While we might have heard these things, you know, privately from some leaders in the region, what is revealed is A sort of general strategy that shows that the the leaders themselves can do absolutely nothing. They're completely powerless, and they are dependent on, on the US, and they're hoping that the US will end up bombing Iran's nuclear facilities. But isn't
1: that a bit of a pattern, willingness on the part of particularly the Gulf Arabs to fight to the last American?
3: Yes, absolutely. I think what's interesting, though, is if one looks at when certain statements were made or of course all of them are reported to have made by american ambassadors or american officials a lot of this was said earlier on in the in the last few years but not recently. I think there some cables, for instance, show that many of these leaders have now reached the conclusion that, that the U.S. won't do anything about Iran and that maybe they need to think of a different strategy. One cable in particular shows that Saudi Arabia is thinking it should diversify its ability, at least, to put pressure on Iran and so develop closer relations with China and Russia and try to put pressure on them to join in a more hawkish attitude towards uh, Iran.
1: You referred earlier to paranoia, which indeed exists about Iran, but to what extent is this really simply hatred on the part of the Sunni Arab leaders of the Shia, exacerbated, of course, by the war in Iraq, which placed the Shia in charge of an Arab heartland country for the first time in practically a millennium?
3: I think Iraq plays a very big role in this because it's shifted the balance of power in the region in favor of of Iran. I don't know to what extent I would say that this is hatred of the Shia. I think there is a lot of suspicion of the Shia in the Sunni Arab world, particularly amongst government, and I'd say less so amongst the people. I mean, I think it's a simplification to just think that Sunni leaders hate the Shia. I think there's a very important political element here. And as you you said, David, the shift in Iraq, the fact that Iran is the main power now in iraq uh, has made the Sunni Arab leaders, particularly those in the Gulf, a lot more paranoid about about Iran. I think Iran's nuclear ambitions are also, also terrify Sunni Arab leaders.
1: Can we talk just for briefly about the reliability of these cables? There have been other instances exposed in which the relevant American diplomats have supposedly said one thing to their interlocutors and then reported back something rather more hawkish or or sharper to home base. Now, isn't it possibly the case that the most quoted remark attributed to the Saudi king, Abdullah, that America should cut off the head of the Iranian stake? Do you think that's accurate? Or do you think it was somewhat embellished by the Saudi ambassador to Washington?
3: I think that's a very good point. The one thing that did surprise me in the reporting of these cables is the position of the Saudi king. And as you say, his position is reported by, by aides. And in the entourage of the king, there are Uh, people who are much more hawkish than him. Now, I can't say what the king really thinks, but I would suspect that he is less enthusiastic for military action against Iran than some of his aides. And it is entirely possible that what they report to the Americans is an exaggeration of the king's own views.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Rula. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Cynthia and Richard in the studio, Ruler in London, Ralph in Frankfurt and Peter in Brussels. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.